I want to know, have you ever been arrested and questioned for speaking for Jesus? Has that ever happened to you? I don't know if anyone here has actually been arrested for it. Now this does happen, um, this does happen and, and much worse in some places, but if you're a Christian here tonight, I expect for you, probably the strongest opposition you faced to speaking about Jesus comes from inside yourself, from inside yourself when it comes down to it. I think our own fears for, for most of us are the strongest opposition that we face and uh, maybe it's not the only opposition, but, but most of the time that's the strongest and if you've broken through that internal opposition, I expect there will have been, been some opposition you'll experience from outside. Perhaps somebody's rejected you bluntly. Maybe they've finished the conversation really quickly with you to try and get away from these creepy Christian types. Or more likely, it'll just be quiet opposition. They'll just uh, avoid the topic with you in future, or maybe just avoid you altogether. But so often we don't even get over that starting line. Our, our fears hold us back. And my question is, well, can we do better? Can we, can we break through that, that barrier of our internal fears? Can we break through that more often? How? That's, that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. And I think it's something relevant to most of us, really. So... We're going to see what God has to say. We're, we're carrying on our journey through the book of Acts. And uh, it's the story of how the church went from being 120 terrified believers hiding in a room to this movement we see today, which reaches to billions of people across the entire world. How, how did that happen? I mean, last week, we saw Peter taking advantage of an opportunity that just came up on the back of a healing miracle and then how opposition reared its head off the back of him speaking. Now today we're going to pick up the story from there and then we're going to see what that has to say for us. But first I just want to pray that God will speak. Lord God, as we come to your word tonight, I pray that we would hear you speak through it. Lord, through your word that you would rule your church like we were hearing this morning. And Lord God, I pray that you would help us to listen to you. And that you'd let my words fall to the ground and your words stand for Jesus' sake. Amen. So please will you follow along with me. We're reading from Acts chapter 4, that's page 1095. 1095 in the Red Bibles. So Acts chapter 4, um, starting at verse 5. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them, and they began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, but who God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who'd been healed, standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. 
So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they've done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must mourn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, who you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So, how do we connect ourselves into this story? Well, imagine you're Peter, okay? Something, something amazing happened yesterday. A man was healed. A man was healed right in front of you. You saw it. It was there. And so did everybody else in the temple courts. He was really healed. There's no question about it. And then you knew you had this one-off opportunity to speak for Jesus. And you went for it. You took it with two hands and you threw yourself at it. But then, then the bigwigs and the, the police turned up and they got all uppity about what you were saying. They didn't just grumble. They, they grabbed you and they dumped you in a stinking dark jail cell and they slammed the door. Now you've been in there all night turning these things over in your head and then they call you in the next morning and and they've assembled everyone all the key people guys who you've only seen on like election posters until now are there in the room people you can tell from their clothes from the way they walk and talk you can tell these are the powerful these are the elite now put yourself there what are you thinking how how, how do you feel what do you think how, how is peter going to be feeling in that situation and then comes the question, by what power or what name did you do this? Now, can you, can you feel the tension of that moment? Can you imagine what it would be like to actually be there in the middle of it? Is there, is there going to be fear inside of Peter? Absolutely, there's going to be fear inside of Peter. Is there, is there hostility outside? Yeah, absolutely. These are not people to mess with, right? These are the same people who under their influence had Jesus killed. You don't have any reason to expect a fair deal from them. 
These aren't guys you're going to have a, a reasonable, balanced discussion with. These are guys who go around killing people they don't agree with. But is it also an opportunity to speak? Is it an opportunity to speak to important, influential people? Now, pause the movie right there. Have you ever had a moment like that? Have you ever been in the position where you knew you had an opening to speak for Jesus? You could see the door there in front of you, but, but there's also fear inside of you at the same time. Have you been somewhere like that? See, I have definitely been places like that. Now the question is, where is it going to go? Is Peter going to bottle it? Do you think he's going to bottle it? Is he just going to come out with some sort of muted whimper? Is it going to be an, an inoffensive, subtly worded reply that kind of lets everyone feel happy with it and doesn't, doesn't upset things? Well, press play in the story again, and it's amazing. How does Peter answer? He's courageous, and he's clear. He's courageous and clear. Now, how come, despite all the pressure, despite all the fear, despite the people in front of him, how come, despite the way this could turn out so badly for him, how come he's courageous and clear in the middle of that? If we want to know the answer, I think we can find it in their prayer meeting, which comes next. So we'll take a look at that, and and then we'll come back, okay? Now, after Peter and John are threatened and released, they go back to their own people, it says, back to the church, and they report what happens, and immediately they turn to prayer. Here's what I want you to notice. How do they pray? Okay? How do they pray? What do you see? Find verse 24. What are the first words of their prayer? Sovereign Lord, they pray. Now, Sovereign Lord, what does that mean? We might connect um, sovereign with king or queen, right? Sovereign means king or queen. But not quite, not in the way we would tend to think about it. You see, we live in this constitutional monarchy, right? We live in a constitutional monarchy where the queen isn't, isn't really the boss. She gets some nice houses, she gets to wear some pretty jewels, um, she gets some ceremonial functions, but she's not really the boss She's actually got quite limited power in our government. She has the power to consult. She has the power to advise. She has the right to warn her government of things. But not much else, really. I guess she could scowl. And a queen scowl could be quite a powerful thing. But, but really, if you're thinking sovereign lord and you map that onto something like the queen, then you haven't really grasped what the words mean here. It's kind of close but no cigar. It's one word in the original language, and it means the one who has supreme power, the one who has total authority, the one whose power is absolutely uncontrolled and unlimited. It comes out of the context of slavery. It's the the term designed for a slave to use of their master to reinforce the relationship, to reinforce the totality of the power of their master, the absolute authority their master has over them. So as they pray that very first word, as they pray, Sovereign Lord, they're actually getting quite a lot in. And then where do they go from that? They say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So you've got total authority and power, Sovereign Lord. And then you've got creation. They stack up how God relates to his world on top of it. He's the creator of everything, of everyone in it. Now, what does it say to us that God is creator? What, what does that mean? What's the implication? He made it. 
He owns it. It's his. It's the same statement of authority, the same relationship of power over the top. He's reinforcing there. Can you see how strong the leading to their prayer is in terms of how highly and greatly it views God? How much it sees God as being in control and with authority over everything. Now, why do they pray this way? Where does this come from? Well, it comes from their worldview. It comes from their, their, their way of seeing things, their way of understanding things. It's, it's how they're framing their prayer. They're kind of putting the, the bigger picture around things before they carry on. Now, I want to talk about this concept of framing for a minute. I want to show you just how significant framing can be. Uh, what do I mean of, by framing? Well, think of a picture. Think of any picture. Here's a, here's a picture. Now, what's going on in this picture? What's going on? Are the, are the poor police under attack by some rabid, riotous, evil rioters? Is that what's going on in this picture? Well, is it? See how different the picture looks once you put it in its wider frame. How you frame the story changes the story. Do you see that? Do you, do you see how significant the wider picture can be for how you understand the smaller picture of your experience today? What we make of our experiences is hugely affected by the frame we put them inside, what sort of background we see them against. You can draw completely different conclusions based on what you think the bigger story is. Let me give you a few examples from normal life, okay? Do you, do you recognize this next picture? This is Edinburgh, right? This is Edinburgh. Now, what is Edinburgh to you? Is Edinburgh big, busy, almost overwhelming? Well, perhaps if you grew up in a fishing village like Hilton on the northeast coast, if you grew up with just a small community, then Edinburgh is going to feel like this overwhelming metropolis. But if you grew up in London or in New York and you come to Edinburgh, Edinburgh feels compact. It's manageable. It's friendly. It's, it's cozy here. You see how the, the, the wider background affects how you interpret it? Or what about this one? What about this next picture? Now, <clears throat> are church services utterly weird? Are there these really strange gatherings like nothing else in all of culture? Well, yes. If you grew up outside the church and you've recently stepped in, this is weird. This is really strange. There is very little like this out there in the church. But if you, if you grew up in the church, this probably feels pretty normal. Hopefully. Nobody's that. No, this feels pretty normal. So, I mean, what else could church even be like? Can you imagine another kind of church? So the frame we have makes all the difference to how we interpret what we see. I mean, let me give you another example. My wife's cousin and her husband, they're a bit extreme. Like, like one day they just decided, I know, let's drive to South Africa with their kids. And then they did drive to South Africa from Scotland. Like I say, a little bit extreme. Well, as tends to happen with that sort... The story is one day they went walking, and people like that don't just go walking. Obviously, they went walking on a, uh, a knife-edge ridge far away in the wilderness in some terrible snowy conditions. And uh, some were very, very remote. I'm not actually sure where it was, but here's the thing. They ended up getting into trouble on the ridge. <clears throat> they ended up getting into a lot of trouble. Um, so much trouble that in the end, they called mountain rescue. The helicopter came in and um, plucked them off the ridge from a very dangerous situation. Now... Here's the thing. Her mother knew nothing of this. Her mother knew nothing at all of this story for quite some time afterwards, for the obvious reason that if she did, she would completely freak out. So, 
ultimately, she found out as a side effect, a sideline from a rather different conversation with her daughter. The daughter called, called to announce she was pregnant, called to share really happy news. And then just at the back of a warm, happy family, lovely conversation, very exciting. Oh, and mum, by the way, we were rescued by helicopter off the ridge. Just dropped it in at the back. Now, again, do you see the bigger frame, the bigger frame and the interpretation of the experience? How we frame things, what we put them into, has the capacity to completely change how we understand them. Now back to Acts, okay? We talked about those first words in their prayer. Sovereign Lord, they said. The one with supreme power, the one with total authority. That was the framing for their prayers. That was the big picture that they were praying their prayers inside of. But not just that. That's what they're framing all their experience in. Peter's locked up overnight. He's facing some of the most powerful people around. He's backed into the corner with a really awkward question. He's going to give them the answer they don't want to hear. How does he see it? What's his frame? What's the big picture that he's fitting his experiences into? Well, here's their frame. Here's what Peter's convinced of. The Lord is sovereign. The Lord has supreme power and total authority. And within that frame, can you begin to see how Peter responds with courage? How he's not overcome by fear. You see, Peter was convinced that the Lord is sovereign. But that's not the whole of it. You see, there's more here. See where the prayer goes next. When they they start quoting the Bible. Psalm 2, as it turns out, is what we read earlier in the service. In Psalm 2, what does it talk about? It talks about the victory of God's Messiah in the face of all of his enemies. It talks about how all their posturing and all their bluster and God sits in heaven and just laughs at them it's just completely futile insignificant resistance inconsequential it's just just noise because God is on the other side and God is sovereign so when we see them praying Psalm 2 they're kind of pulling back the curtain a little bit more for us they're letting us see more of how they view the big story how they understand their world fitting together this story that God's Messiah is going to come. He's going to be resisted by the world. But God's completely sovereign over that. Completely going to be victorious. They see themselves in this big story. And you can see that as they go on to pray. See in verse 27 what they pray? After they've quoted Psalm 2, they go on to pray, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, who you anointed. And you see how closely that connects to the psalm. What did the psalm say was going to happen? The kings were going to conspire against God's anointed. What exactly happened in Jerusalem just a few weeks back? Well, the kings and the powers met together to conspire against God's anointed. It's part of the story. It's part of the story. And they understand it as part of the bigger story. They can make sense of their experience. They can interpret it. Knowing the bigger picture. See, knowing God sees these nations gathering together against them and he just laughs at them. They might be kings. They might be kings with armies. But it doesn't matter in reality, in the big picture. It's like a man standing in the tracks of a speeding train, holding his hands out and saying, stop. That's what it's like to stand against this sovereign God. That's what the chances these kings have of actually diverting God's plan. Smack. Smack. That's what's coming for them. Now, 
That's how the story is going to end. I want us to see something else from this. This isn't just the disciples showing us their frame. They're not just showing us their big story they think all this fits into. They're also telling us how they built their frame. How did they assemble this big picture? How did they know what the big story was that everything was going to fit into? How did they make sense of their life? Where does their frame come from? It comes from the Bible. That's how they got the grip on the big picture that their lives fit into. That's how they understood the big story that there's a part of. That's where they, they got their frame from. They read and they believed the Bible. They took it as their source of what the story is. What's really going on? What really is behind everything we see? What's really wrapping them all up? What is this big picture? Quick aside, they don't just build their frame from the Bible. They say, and they tell us something very important about what the Bible is. And so ultimately where they get their frame from. They say the Bible is God speaking. Look at me with verse 25. You spoke, it says. You spoke by the Holy Spirit. Through the mouth of your servant, our father David. You spoke. Now what does that make the Bible? Does that make the Bible just another book? Albeit an ancient book. Albeit an interesting book. No, it doesn't. It says the Bible is God speaking to us. It says God spoke by the Holy Spirit. Through the mouth of David. God spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David. And we get Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is God speaking to us. Now, is this making sense? Let me, let me summarize where we got to. You would have thought Peter would be terrified, okay? It's a pretty high pressure situation. It's pretty scary. But he's not terrified. How come? Because as we see when they come to pray, he has this bigger picture. He knows what this is a part of. And he built his bigger picture from the Bible. He knows a sovereign God is working out his plan. An utterly irresistible God is working out his plan. Now I want to step back for a moment and think, what does this mean for us? Okay, what has this got to say to us? Does it, does it matter much? Does it have anything to say to us today? We're not Peter. I mean, we're not, we're not there. I think it does. You see, what we're convinced of, what we think the big story is, the picture that we frame things in, this worldview, the flashy philosophical term, this makes all the difference in the world. You see, we started tonight talking about speaking for Jesus and how that can be a very fearful experience sometimes. It makes a difference there, for sure, and we'll come back to that later, but it's actually bigger than that. See, if we don't have the bigger picture together, if we're not actually convinced of it, then, then we can misread life completely. Our experiences can completely overwhelm us. Let me, let me show you how that works, okay? Now, uh, a Christian friend of mine went into hospital just before Christmas. Uh, he went in thinking he had man flu. Uh, he wasn't feeling too good. Well, he came out just in the new year knowing he has lung cancer. He has a 30% chance of seeing 2016. He's been doing important work for God, useful work for God. And now he's going to die. What do we make of a catastrophe like that? Something that just completely comes from outside. 
Now, if my big story is, well, do you know, God is in the business of making sure those who do good things receive good things. God is in the business of paying back good things we do with good things coming to us. If that's my story, then I'm broken by this. Right? It completely wrecks us. But I've done good, God. I've been trying to help you. I've been really nice. And now now I'm dying? If that's your story, you see, experience just can overwhelm us. Now, I don't know if you've seen, there's a beautiful video from Thai Life Insurance going around on Facebook at the moment. It's lovely. It shows a man just repeatedly doing tiny acts of kindness. You know, he, he, he gives to the poor, or he, he, he gives some food to somebody next door to him, or he, he feeds a stray dog. And then as the film goes on, people look at him and they mock him and they're like, stupid guy, just wasting your money. Not going to change anything. But the film shows you that actually the world starts to change. The film tries to tell you that um, actually he, he, he starts changing the lives of these people and he gets rewarded for it through experiences and through emotion and through friendship and through progress. That's a lovely story. It's really moving and it's a touching video. It's beautifully made. It's inspiring. But here's the problem. It's not true. It's not actually true. See, my friend did good. He did loads of good. He gave and he gave and he gave of himself and now he's dying. Let me give you a different story, okay? This world is broken. But through the mess and the pain that it is, God is working out his plan to rescue it, even though, even though it's often invisible. One day all his followers are going to see him put it all right. Now, if you're convinced of that story, can you make sense of something as terrible as terminal cancer? Yeah. Now look, I'm not saying it takes away the pain. I'm not saying it makes it simple or easy. Not at all. But in the frame of the bigger story, I can make sense of it. I can see that this does fit into the story. And I know that this isn't it. This isn't the end of the story. There's a bigger picture. This isn't the whole story. And the big picture makes all the difference. So how do we go about building a right frame? One to make sense of life from. There are lots of ways people go about this. We could look inside ourselves and try and work from within us to what's the real story of life. Or, or we could look out there into the world around us and we could, we could see but you know what? If you ask five people what the big story is, you'd get five different answers. There are lots of different stories out there in the world, and each one of them shapes our experiences. Each one of them helps us interpret differently how we live. Let me give you some examples. Like, are we just, are we hairless apes, an unlikely accident, just a bundle of deterministic chemical reactions and physical laws, and life is ultimately meaningless? Is that, is that the big story? A lot of people would tell you that's the big story. Now, if that's your big picture you're fitting your life into, what sense does that help you make of your experiences when you feel love, when you feel hurt, when you long for a purpose? That story's got no answers for you at all. Or what about this? We're all good people deep down inside, and if we could just let this out, if we could just be nice to each other for a change, this world, this world will be sorted out. Or, or what about this one? It's just every man for themselves in this dog-eat-dog world. Whoever has the most toys when they die, wins. 
There are lots of stories. There are lots of different stories that we can fit our lives and experiences into. But they can't all be true. There's only one that's true. How do we know which? Well, listen to the disciples for a minute. They say that God speaks in the Bible. The all-powerful, sovereign Lord. And now, for the logical types among you, here's a logical argument. Okay, logically, an all-powerful, sovereign God is going to know the big story. Why would an all-powerful, sovereign God know the big story? Because they're all-powerful and sovereign. They know the big story because they write the big story. They're in control, right? So doesn't it make sense that an all-powerful God could see the whole picture? Be the only one, actually, to see the whole picture. The only one in a position to tell us the story. Where else could we possibly look? We can't look to ourselves. All of us only see such a tiny corner. How can we imagine what the big story is around us? So it's logical if there was an all-powerful, sovereign God. That would be the place to go for your story. The only place. Let's say you're willing to take this idea for a spin. You look to God to give us the big picture, which frames everything. How do we build that frame? What do we, what do we practically do to go about doing this? Read the Bible. Where God speaks, telling us the big story. Seriously, it's not rocket science. It's not trivial to do this. Actually, it's quite a challenge often, but it's very, very important. Simple basics. Read the Bible. Read the Bible and get a hold on it. Read the Bible straining to see what is the big story that it's laying out for us. Ask others how the Bible fits together. What's the big picture? Share with them something you've grasped. I understand how these two bits together. Well, share it with somebody else. Or look out for books that help you to put it all together. Um, there's one called God's Big Picture by, by Vaughn Roberts. It's a, it's a great stab, this one, at trying to summarize how it all fits together. If you want a copy of that, grab me after the service. I'd be delighted to get you one. But you've got to go to the source too. You've got to start with reading the Bible. And if you don't read it regularly right now, I want to ask you to change that tonight. Change it tonight. Get a Bible. We'll give you one if you don't have one. Get a plan. We've got lots to choose from here. Some are really hardcore. So if you're, you can have one of those. Some are quite relaxed and lightweight, but they'll still take you through the Bible. Get, get, get an app for your phone. There are great apps. And almost all the apps have a great plan that goes with them. But start now. Don't hold off on this because this is how you build your big picture. And if you fall off that horse of reading your Bible to build your plan, which you will, if you've already fallen off that horse, probably plenty of you in this room, well, do you know what the trick is? Just get back on. Start again. It's okay. Pick yourself up and get going again. There's no substitute for the big picture. There's no substitute for having the right frame to fit our lives into. Without a big story, there's no way we're going to be able to make right sense of our experiences. It changes everything. So get convinced of it. Some of you might be thinking, look, I know the big story. But still, I find myself so afraid when that moment comes to speak. Well, I can see that. But I wonder if there isn't a possibility while you know the big story, perhaps you're not actually that convinced of it. See, it's not the same thing, knowing it and being convinced of it. These are not the same thing at all. I have an experiment for you to do the next time you're there. The next time you find yourself holding back from something you think you should have done, well, investigate afterwards, Okay. Call in the CSI to walk through your mind. Try and explore what was really going on. What, what was I thinking? What, what did I see this being a part of? How did I understand that conversation? Did I, did I have the big picture? Did I have the big picture in view? 
when I came to the edge and I lost my bottle, did I have the big picture? See, we can work the thing backwards, if you see what I mean. Ultimately, what we say we believe doesn't matter a who. It's what we actually believe that matters. It's what we actually believe. And we can see more of what we actually believe in how we respond to our experiences. It shows us what we really think the big story is. So the, the next time you're stuffed up and you come out on one of those experiences, do a debrief, do some investigation, dig around. What was going on inside me? Why did I do that? Back to the story. Remember Peter? Peter is not terrified in the face of these powerful people. How come? Because he's convinced there's this bigger story as we saw in the prayer meeting. He's framing it in the big picture. The picture he built from the Bible, right? This picture that has a sovereign God, unstoppable, working out his plan. There's an important thread in the big story we see here. If you look at verse 8, it's back over the page. In verse 8 it says, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, how does that connect to this wider story? Well, the Spirit gives power to proclaim. Like we heard in earlier in our Acts series, power to proclaim. It's another part of Peter's framing. He knows and expects that the Spirit will give him the power to speak. Do you remember Jesus' last recorded words at the very start of Acts to disciples? He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses. Jesus connects the Holy Spirit to power for being witnesses. He wants the disciples to wait in Jerusalem for it. That's how important the Holy Spirit is. Should we expect the Spirit to be at work in us when we're reaching out for Jesus? Does that make sense? Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. A work for them, giving power to proclaim. And for us, for us too. Power to proclaim. So Peter's convinced of God's big story and he finds himself inside it. So he's able to be courageous. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, he speaks boldly, knowing God's purposes are going to stand, knowing God's plan's going to work out. But it's important to remember, this is not a walk in the park for Peter. I don't want you to think that if I just got this straight, it would all be so straightforward. That's, that's not fair. He was convinced of God's big story, that God's Messiah would rule. But he also knew everything wasn't going to go swimmingly for him, didn't he? Uh, you remember Jesus' post-resurrection words to him right at the end of John? He's going to have them running around in his mind. He, Jesus said to him, he said, Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Peter knows he's going to end up a prisoner. Ultimately, he knows he's going to die for Jesus. Could this be the start of that right now? Possibly. So the big story helps, but it doesn't make this trivial still. We've still got a step of courage. And the last thing I want us to see is just how clear Peter is in what he says. He's not much of a politician, Peter. I like him. I think he'd be my sort of guy. Um, there's no softly, softly, is there? There's no tiptoeing around trying to present this gently. He's not carefully choosing inoffensive words, you know, that are going to cause the least rumble. No. He's convinced and he's courageous and he's clear. It's pointed stuff. It's the stuff most of us would feel pretty awkward, I think, dropping into conversations. It's so un-PC. It's so non-negotiable. 
It's so hard-edged. I mean, look at how he lays it out for the crowd assembly. He says, the healing miracle comes by the name of Jesus Christ. Now, I think the significance of that name is often lost on us. When we read it nowadays, but to them, it was utterly clear. You see, Peter isn't just saying, look, look, it was Jesus Christ, not Jesus Smith doing this. It's not just a case of a different surname. It's not a surname at all. It's an alternative name. It's a real danger. We read it like it's a surname, right? Jesus, Mr. Christ is how we read it. But that's not, that's not what it means. It means something big. He's Jesus and he's Messiah. He's Messiah. That means uh, anointed one or chosen one. Peter is claiming Jesus is God's chosen deliverer. And not just that chosen deliverer, something that should terrify those assembled. He's the chosen deliverer you crucified, he says. It's not making it easy for them. He says, you stood against God's chosen one. You put him to death. And then he adds more. He's not just the one you killed. The one you killed and the one God raised, he says. And you might have thought you won against that Jesus guy, but you weren't banking on him being Jesus Messiah, he's back. The one you rejected, he's become the cornerstone. Just like Peter knew he would be from the big story. But there's more, he's not just the cornerstone. He packs it in, doesn't he? He's the only way to salvation. There's salvation in no one else, he says. There's no other name by which we must be saved. That is so offensively exclusive, isn't it? No other name at all. There's no many roads up one mountain wiggle room here. There's no, well, I'm sure Mrs. Tibbs will be up there now smiling down on us. She was always so kind to her cats. There's, there's, there's none of that, right? There's this total hard exclusivity. But then, isn't that exactly what you'd expect from God's Messiah? If there were lots of other ways then why would he have come? If it wasn't utterly essential that he came and suffered and died, if that wasn't essential, then if there were other ways all along, why would he have come? Peter's clear, right? He's brutally clear. The star might appeal to you. For some of us, this is our kind of natural operating style. But it might not. You might find this really awkward and offensive. We don't always have to be this clear every time we speak for Jesus. Later on, as we carry on reading through Acts, we'll see Paul speaking for Jesus in different ways, in different places, using different words and different approaches, emphasizing different aspects. The point isn't that it has to be said this way. But we do need to be as clear as Peter on what the truth actually is. Now we need to be completely clear on what the truth is. And Jesus is the Messiah, God's chosen one. Killed but raised. And there, there's, as awkward as this exclusivity is in our, in our multicultural, postmodern universe, there is no other name by which people can be saved. Notice the urgency Peter speaks with. He says, we must be saved. Perhaps there's some of you here this evening who need to hear this. Maybe some of you have been putting your trust in something else and you need to hear these words that there is no other way, no other name. Maybe you've been looking to something else. Maybe you've been looking to the way you do nice things and the world's going to pay you back or God owes you one. Maybe you're looking to somebody on earth who's going to look after you. 
But it says that salvation is found in no one else. So you need to, you must be saved by this name. And you can, you can do it tonight. You can do it here. It's not a really complicated, difficult thing. It's a really simple thing. There's no special assembly required. You just, just reach out to Jesus and ask. And you know, he's here. He's here and he's listening right now. And you can ask him now. And he's ready. Now, I'm going to give us a moment just now. If that's you, respond in your heart if that's you. If you did reach out to Jesus tonight, please tell someone afterwards because we want to help you make a good start. We want to help you get clear on what the, the, the true big story is. Let us help you. We're not going to stalk you. We're not freaky, dangerous types. We just want to help you. So make yourself known to someone, maybe somebody you came with, maybe one of the staff here. We'd love to do that for you. But I've got to bring the plane into land. Back to fear and uh, speaking for Jesus. What do we learn from what we've looked at today? Our worldview, our understanding of what the big picture is, makes a huge difference to how we interpret our experience. Specifically, what you think the big story is, changes, drives how you'll respond when you have a chance to speak for Jesus. So get convinced of the big story. That'll put you in the right frame to speak. See the bigger picture and be courageous. Get bigger things in view than just rejection from your friends. Get your message clear. People need to come to Jesus. There's no other name. Salvation's in no one else. You have to let them know. Our memory verse of the year says, I have many people in this city. I have many people. Perhaps the person you find yourself talking to is going to be one of them. So get convinced, get courageous, get clear, and get ready for God to use you this coming week. Let me pray for us.